Turn me on, Tom. There we go. Lewis was sharing with me last week that he was stepping out of his comfort zone. I had a sermon a long time ago about we need to step out of our comfort zone to do things for the Lord. And he prefers singing with a group around him. And to stand up and to do a solo, you did a good job, Lewis. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There for a while I worked with Mark Finley. You know who Mark Finley is, right? Is my hair down? Everybody's been telling me my hair's been standing up today. Mark Finley shared with me one time when he was in Korea. And uh, he was getting ready to present the uh, Antichrist. And the place in the big auditorium was just packed with thousands of people. And he gets up and he starts his preliminary and just as he's just about getting ready to preach about the Antichrist, his translator passes out. And he comes to and he says, I am so sick, I cannot translate. And Mark doesn't know any Korean and he's wondering, what am I going to do? And he silently said a prayer and there was a man that stood up And uh, not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he says, I can translate. And so he came up and he translated the whole series or the whole night on the Antichrist. And when Mark made an appeal at the end, the new translator came a little ways forward and was baptized later. So... uh, Then another time Mark was getting ready in Chicago, and this is when I was with him, was in Chicago to preach the Antichrist the afternoon before he broke his foot. And uh, he kept telling the emergency room uh, attendants that he had to be at those meetings. You don't understand, I'm presenting the Antichrist and I need to be at the meetings. And and, uh, they said, no, you can't be there. And he says, I'm going to be there. And so he was at the meetings with a broken foot. We had to put a stool up on front for him to rest his leg on. And uh, he was in a lot of pain, but he went through. The devil doesn't want want me to preach this one either because all this week there have been things going wrong. And then last night, both Gene and I was getting sick. And I thought, oh, no. Here comes the curse of the devil. But uh, I'm here this morning. And we're going to look at this, and you might be thinking, why am I preaching the Antichrist to a bunch of Seventh-day Adventists when we see it at Evangelistic Series? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, I wouldn't be doing it if Christ didn't want me to do it. And uh, if you'll notice, I was kidding with someone. I said uh, the new signs of the times that we have in the back there One of the articles is on the Antichrist. I said I had to work with the editor a long time for us to come up to the same date to get it all together. That's not true, but uh, that's the way God works, you know. Um, He's a a wonderful God. And so God wants me to preach this. Plus it will help us because the whole series, and of those of you who haven't been here for the uh, last two weeks, topics on the Antichrist. Um, The Lord is really blessed because next week what we're going to look at is the Antichrist in our church. 
And I told the guys up in the PA system that either next week they're going to have to make a lot of CD copies or the whole church will get up and walk out, one or the other. But uh, the Lord, I know, is going to lead us and guide us. But I need strength right now. Let's just bow our heads for a little word of prayer, shall we? Father, you are my strength, my shield, my truth. The truth shall make us free. So I'm here to present the truth today as it is found in the Bible. We pray for your guidance of the Spirit to make it clear in our minds and our hearts is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Satan's a con man. That's what he knows best, is how to deceive people. I like Lori's story of how the fruit, you can take a look at fruit. And my wife had some artificial fruit out one time, and I picked it up thinking it was a nice big apple and started to take a bite of it. And it wasn't real. So you can be deceived very easily, and that is his job. That's what he does best. Many a times we think that the devil is a very mean, angry-looking person. Sometimes we think that he has horns and a tail and a pitchfork and he's all red. That's what he wants you to think because in reality, he was in heaven was a, an angel, a beautiful angel, a powerful angel. They, the scholars believe that his, his pipes, his voice box was so beautiful that he could sing notes and probably led the angelic choir. He was so talented. Got to watch music today, young people, because he knows how to use music. I'm not going to get into that. But he is very powerful in the music to lead you away from Christ. But anyway, he is a beautiful angel that was in heaven. He was created by God. God created him perfect. We looked at all of this. was a beautiful angel, a very talented angel, had the highest position an angel could have in heaven, but he wanted more. He didn't want to be a created being. He wanted to be God. He wanted the position of the throne of the highest in heaven and have everyone worship him. And in order to do that, he thought that his best way to do it is to be able to talk to the other angels and to say, look at this God. He has rules that you should not be able to follow at all. He is a tyrant. He is a God that is not a God of love. And he keeps going on and on and on. And the Bible tells us that he deceived a third of the angels in heaven. And war broke out in heaven. And Satan and his evil angels were cast down to this earth. And that made him angry. Now he wasn't in heaven. He was away from his throne. He was down here on this earth. He was where God had created something. And he was now going to go after God's creatures. How dare God cast me out of heaven. I'm there to take his place. And so there was Adam and Eve. And Eve came over near to him. Whoops, how did that get in there? Well, it says that war broke out in heaven. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of the old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so he goes to Eve and he begins to use his deceptive ways. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of the fruit of the garden? She repeats back to him just exactly what God says. 
And he says, you won't die. After God said if she ate of the forbidden fruit that she would surely die. You won't die. You'll be just like God knowing good and evil. See, Satan wants to be just like God. Do you see what he's sliding in there? He's trying to put his, his thoughts, his theories, his ways into the minds of God's created beings. Doing it in such a subtle way that she thought she was doing what was right. She looked at the fruit. Why, it looked good to eat. Didn't seem like there was anything wrong with it. And so she took of the fruit and she gave the fruit then to her husband and he did eat. And oh, the changes that took place. The things that had happened after that. She gave that fruit to her husband and then all the world began to be changed and evil crept in and said the wickedness got so great that later on God had to destroy what he had created, except for Noah and his family, brought the animals into the ark. We know the story of Noah, brought them into the ark, and then the flood came. People had opportunity to come in and to be saved, but they chose not to. They laughed and ridiculed Noah. They laughed and ridiculed his family. And then even when they saw the miracles that were taking place and, and saw the animals going in and saw Noah and saw that big door closing seemingly by itself, but an angel had closed that door. They still didn't come until the rain started coming and the floods came up. And then soon mankind was destroyed except for Noah and his creatures. Satan is very good at that total deception. Even when they see miracles right before their eyes, they still don't want to follow God. We have later on many examples of, of what Satan has done. We uh, have the example when God's people were captured or taken in as slaves with the Egyptians and the Egyptians made them work and whipped them and did all kinds of things to them. And the people were crying out, you know, let us go, let us go. And it didn't, they, Pharaoh wouldn't let them go until God created the plagues to come. And then finally Pharaoh let the people go to go out and to worship. Satan thought that he had him trapped, thought that he had him under control by being under the, he was controlling the, the Egyptian Pharaoh and he thought that I would be able to control this whole earth. But then God intervenes. Oh, we see another example where Solomon built a temple Beautiful temple for God's people to come and to worship. You would think if people are going to come to worship that they're going to follow after God and that there wouldn't be any problem of Satan coming and attacking. But oh, Satan, he likes to come in and attack. And he sent the Babylonian Empire to come in and to destroy the temple and to carry off all the sacred vessels that were in the temple that all pointed towards Christ took the young people and, and brought them into captivity and tried to brainwash them so that they would be like the pagans, would see and think and worship like the pagans. He thought he had the young people under control until God reached down and touched Daniel and his friends. 
And things began to change. It seems like everything that Satan tries to do, God intervenes and makes changes. But he still has the majority of the people. He still reaches in and he grabs them and he touches them and and he influences their lives. When Jesus came, he didn't want Jesus to come. And so even at Jesus' birth, he set up a death decree to kill all the male babies, especially in, in Bethlehem, and to get rid of those male babies, but it didn't work. And then later on, he thought he succeeded when the church, when the church turned Jesus over to the Roman authorities, to have him crucified on the cross. The church turned Jesus over. Ah, I've got him now. I've got Jesus in the grave. I've got him right where I want him. And so all the Roman soldiers were placed right there to guard that grave. And no one was to get into that grave. But one angel came from heaven and those powerful Roman soldiers fell over like dead men. And that grave was opened up. The stone was rolled back. And Jesus came forth alive. Satan couldn't keep him in the grave. So he began to say, well, if I can't keep Jesus in the grave, then I'm going to get after his disciples. And there was the disciples. They were instructed by Jesus to go out into the world and share the everlasting gospel to the world. And here they are, they're sitting in the room and they're cowering and they're shaking. How are we going to do this? We're just a few people. How's that going to take place? And then in that room they began to pray. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came down on them like fire. And they began to share the gospel to the world. And people, thousands of people were being converted in one day. What an amazing thing to take place. Satan tried to stop them, tried to intimidate them, tried to cast fear on them, and then the power of the Holy Spirit came and changed their lives. You know, on Satan's point of view, God's messing up everything. How am I going to be God in heaven? How am I going to control the earth if he gets messing things up? And so... He now wants to start changing his tactics. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. He says, now I'm going to go after the very elect of God, the very ones who claim to be the followers of Christ. I'm going to deceive them. I'm going to use a new type of weapon upon them. I'm going to make it appear like they're worshiping God when in reality they're not. Over time, just didn't happen instantaneously, but Satan's plan was to infiltrate into the church and to begin to change the church from the inside to be able to cause the Christian church to change their standards, to change their doctrines, to have the church begin to adopt pagan worship within their Christian worship, thinking that we'll attract the pagans to come to the church. 
and to worship with us. We'll make it so special that they'll want to come to church and fill the church up. And, and that we won't offend them in any way. We'll give the, the pagan gods, we'll give them Christian names. We'll, we'll change everything so that, it, that, that they think that they're coming in and they're worshiping the pagan gods and they're worshiping our God. And everything will be okay. This was a long, slow change that took place. But that change began to make people to to understand the Bible differently. They begin to think, well, now this is in the Bible. Somewhere I saw it in there or we wouldn't be doing it in the church today. So they began to look and to change. They began to leave out parts of the Bible. They began to include traditions to take their place and have the people think that they are worshiping God. That was his tactic. And so we have... What the Bible talks about is, is starts a slow process from within the church to develop the Antichrist and even change the meaning of the word Antichrist. Most people, most Christians believe that the word Antichrist means someone who is against Christ. So we think, oh, I know who the Antichrist is. They're against Christ. I can see them. I know them. I won't be deceived. But let me tell you something. The word antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. The word antichrist means to take the place of Christ. Wait a minute. To take the place of Christ. Someone who looks, speaks, instructs, and obtains worship who is teaching the ways and the practices of the satanic rituals, but people think that they are worshiping God. Someone who appears in the form of Christianity, but and is respected by non-Christian religions around the world, but in reality are not following the teachings of the Bible. Someone who is going to interpret to the common people what the Bible means. And in reality, what they are doing is not interpreting the Word of God, but they are interpreting the Word of man, which comes from the Word of Satan. So in order to protect God's people, God gave Daniel a description of this Antichrist beast. Daniel calls this Antichrist beast the little horn, but if you go into Revelation, there's many other names. Babylon, the harlot, the beast that comes up out of the sea. A lot of names, but Daniel calls it a little horn because of the vision that he has seen. But it's still referring to the Antichrist. Daniel saw a vision of some strange animals. The angel of the Lord gave him the interpretation of these animals when, when he began to see them because they were the strangest things in the world. Probably, if you and I was to see something like that, we would either think we had eaten some terrible rotten pizza before we went to bed or maybe it was the devil himself that was trying to influence us. But anyway, he saw these strange-looking animals and pretty soon the interpretation began to come. First, the first beast that came up that was a lion and had the, 
had the wings on it was Babylon. And that was the, the pagans that came in that, were, that captured and took captive Daniel and his companions and brought them in to brainwash them. And then it said in the, in the vision of Daniel 2 that he told the king, he says, you know, after you, you're that king of gold, that head of gold, but after you is going to come another nation that's going to overthrow you, an inferior nation. And we know, and in Daniel 7, it tells us that that nation was, was the Medes and Persians coming in together and he used the animals of the bear and, and the ribs in his mouth. And then it tells us the next nation that comes in was Alexander the Great and Greece and it was divided among his four generals and it was a very swift because of the wings that were on there. And it's just amazing that they interpreted and they said each one of these things are going to take place. God, when he reveals things, he gets down to the minute detail. But then it says, After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had a huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We know from history that the next empire that came after Greece was the pagan Roman Empire. And as Daniel was looking at this beast and considering those, those ten horns, looking at those ten horns, wondering what in the world is going on, something is really strange here. As he's considering this horn and as he's looking at it and wondering, how am I going to think? I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them. How strange. Before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Those pompous words is blasphemy. And I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute, persecute the saints of the Most High, that's God's people, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. Strange things that he was looking at. And he was looking and he was trying to consider that horn and, and the persecution of the Christians and the saints of God. And what is this talking about? What is happening here? Who is this little horn that's coming up that plucked up three of them? Who is this persecuting power? Who is this that's going to take place? What's happening? And Daniel says, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. And my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Who would believe me if I was to tell someone? All of this was very worrisome to Daniel. What does it mean? I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. What does it mean? Who is this little horn power? And so we have in Daniel revealed to us, Daniel didn't have the New Testament but we do, and it gives us added information about this little horn, about this Antichrist beast. We have texts like 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God 
or is worshipped. So this is a religious power that's coming in that's going to exalt himself above God so that he sets himself up in God's temple, in God's church, proclaiming himself to be God. Revelation 13, 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things. If you're speaking great things, people will listen. And blasphemies was coming out of his mouth. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Keep in mind this 42 months we're going to see it again, 1,260 days. There's 30 days in a Jewish month. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. Revelation gives us that added information. 1 John verse 4, verse 3, And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now, John says, right now, already is it in the world. He saw the changes started coming in and taking place within God's church. He began to recognize and he says, this is the Antichrist. It's happening even right now. Well, that's the devil's tactics. And we learned the identity of Antichrist. Now keep in mind that it's identity that we're going to see this morning is nothing new. I'm not creating anything new that hasn't been seen before by people who have studied the Bible. In fact, clear back in the, the great reformers of our church, back in the days of the Reformation, there were scholarly men within the church that began to sit down and, and study for the first time the Bible. For a long time, the Bible was kept out of the hands of common people. It was kept out of the hands of a lot of the priests that were within the church. And so they didn't know what the Word of God was saying. And they began to believe a lot of things, but when they began to open the Bible, they noticed, hey, this is not what we're being taught. This is not what's going on. And so as they studied, they studied books like, like Daniel, and they studied books like Revelation, and they studied Thessalonians, and they began to see and put together, and they began to say, you know, this is telling us something about what's going on in the church today, that the devil has control of the church today. And so they began to write their findings in books for others to read. And they began to proclaim what they found. And other people began to listen. And they began to say, this is the truth. The professor, George Ladd, a former professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, studied the Reformers' literature. Listen to what he had to say from his findings. This is from the book, The Blessed Hope, George Ladd. Many of the great Christians of Reformation and post-Reformation times shared this view of prophetic truth and identified the Antichrist with whom? The Roman papacy. The Reformers, the Reformed Church, the, the Protestant Reformation, as they studied these Bibles, as they studied the Word of God, and as the Spirit moved them, they began to say, look, the things that's happening is happening in our church. The Antichrist is the Roman papacy. Among adherents of this interpretation were the, were the Waldenses, 
the Hussites, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Tyndall, Latimer, and Ridley. These are, the, these are people who are not just in the same room and studied together. These were people that were all over Europe that were studying the Bible at different times. And they were opening it up and they are saying, look, it is the, the Roman church that is the Antichrist. But will people believe me? Leaders such as, uh, this is from Roy Anderson, says leaders such as Luther, Calvin, Knox, and, and Cranmer pointed to Daniel 7 and Revelation 17, identifying the great apostasy with headquarters in Rome. The scriptural message of Revelation 18 verse 4 formed the basis of many of their sermons saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. That was their message. That was the Reformation message. Come out of the church. Now wait a minute. Many of these were priests in the church. Many of them were priests in the Roman church. And they're saying, men, women, boys, girls, get out of the church. That was their message. Why? Because the church is the Antichrist. Look what Wycliffe said. He was very bold. The Pope is Antichrist here on earth. Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote. This bothered him. He says, oh, how much pain it has caused me, though I had the Scriptures on my side, that I should dare to make a stand alone against the Pope and to hold him forth as Antichrist. It bothered him to say that because he was a priest in the church. It bothered him to stand and say, my leader is the Antichrist. But then look what it says. He continues on. "'Twas so I fought with myself, and with whom? With Satan, till Christ, by his own infallible word, fortified my heart against these doubts." It was when he says, Thus saith the Lord, it is true, and I must realize it, even though I have a struggle with it, it is on Christ's own words that I base my faith. Brothers and sisters, that's what we've got to do today. Because if Satan can infiltrate into a major church, he can infiltrate into this church as well too. And until we as brothers and sisters of Christ until we get back into the Bible and to begin to study the Bible, we can be fooled. And we think that we're worshiping Christ. Now, ah, those are the reformers. What do they know? That was way back then. Things are different now. But they began to preach what they found in the Bible. But not without great difficulty. Let me tell you, the church was angry. The Roman church says, we don't want this. We want you to recant what you're sharing. We don't want you to share God's holy word. We don't want you to preach in this world. We don't want you to expose our sins. Many people listened to the reformers. They looked at the biblical evidence and they began to spread it all around. It was almost as if it was the second Pentecost. 
that was taking place in the world. Maybe we need to look at the evidence today. Now, I'll warn you, Satan doesn't want you to accept the biblical truth about the Antichrist. He wants you to have made up your mind already. He doesn't want you to look at the biblical facts. Some of you are going to fall asleep. Some of you are going to have little kids that are going to bother you. But let me tell you, when we look at God's Word, we are going to be set free from the control of Satan. So let's see what Daniel has to say about the subject. Do you know why I'm preaching it? When the evangelist was here, remember when we had our evangelistic series? Okay, now he said that there were times that he has gone to some of our own churches to be able to share the evangel- some of the things that we're looking at here to share his evangelistic series some of the pastors would not let him speak. Whoa. Brothers, sisters, I'm here to present what God says. And that's what we're going to look at. Let's take a look at what it says because we're going to be free from Satan. What do the horns represent? Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and it had ten horns, those ten horns that were there. What are those horns? I was considering the horns, Daniel said, and there was another horn, a little one, that came up among them, and the ten horns out of the kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. The horns are what? They're kings or kingdoms that are going to arise. Ten kingdoms came up as he's thinking and contemplating about this. And we know that that next empire that came up after Alexander Great was the pagan Rome, the Roman Empire. And among Rome there were ten kingdoms that came in. Now this empire that took all of Europe and we know that the barbaric tribes came out of the north and came down. There were ten of them. Began to divide Rome up into ten different parts that came across. Completed by 476 A.D. Those ten kingdoms, we have the, the names of those, those uh, barbaric tribes that came in. The Alamanni or the Germans, we know it as Germany today. The Burgundies is the Swiss, the Franks are the French, the Lombards are the Italians, the Saxons are the English, the Suave are the Portuguese, the Visigoth are the Spanish, the Hurrieli, somehow they're extinct. You can't find them today. The Ostrogoths, extinct, you can't find them today. The Vandals, extinct, you can't find them today. What happened when the little horn came up? said how many of the ten would be destroyed of the ten horns? Three. How many are not in existence today? Well, does God know what he's talking about? He knows what he's talking about, brothers and sisters. Ten kingdoms came up. Three of them are extinct. Here's the map of Europe where they all settled. And then the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, those ten kings. And another shall rise up after them, and he shall subdue three kings. He's going to get rid of three kings. Somehow, three of them were wiped out. Do you notice one of the countries where it was wiped out from? That one that kind of looks like a boot? What country is that? Italy. What's one of the places that is big in Italy? It's called Rome. 
Does that have anything to do with it? The Hurrieli kingdom, history tells us, met their fate with Catholic Emperor Zeno in 493. What kind of an emperor was he? Catholic? Wiped him out. Do you know why? Because they disagreed with the religious, their religion disagreed with their religion, and so they wiped him out. Well, that's one kingdom gone. Another emperor, Justinian, exterminated the Vandals in 583 A.D. and then broke the power of the Ostrogoths in 538. There's two more. How many does that make? Justinian was a Catholic emperor. Ah. Thus the three horns of Daniel's prophecy were plucked up by the roots, making the rise of the church in Rome a reality. What do I mean by that? It was at this time, 538, that Justinian made a decree establishing the bishop of Rome as the political and religious leader of Western Rome. Set up the kingdom, 538 A.D. Thomas Hobbes, historian, says, If a man considers the original of this great ecclesiastical dominion, he will easily perceive that the papacy is none other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon the grave thereof. It's beginning to take over. The bishop of Rome now becomes the pope or papa of a new nation, with religious and political responsibilities. Look at what Carl Conrad Eckhart says. Under the Roman Empire, the popes had no temporal power. That's that pagan Rome had no power at all. But when the Roman Empire had disintegrated, that's when the ten tribes came down, and its place had been taken by a number of the rude barbarous kingdoms, that's those ten kingdoms that came down and and divided up Europe, the Roman Catholic Church not only became independent of the states in religious affairs, but dominated secular affairs as well. Daniel 7.24 says that this little horn is going to be different than the first. How is it different than those? the first? It's talking about those other ten kingdoms. Why is the little horn different than the other ten kingdoms? The other ten kingdoms were just political powers. This one is political and religious. Different than the others. Daniel 7.25 And he shall speak great words against whom? Who's the Most High? It's against God. Here is God's church coming into power. And then he begins to change. Remember I said the devil wants to work within the church to make changes. And now it's working and it's doing great words against the Most High. What is the devil doing? Well, do you know that Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of blasphemy when he claimed he was equal with God and that he could... He had the power to be able to forgive sins. Many times, you know, when he healed someone, he says, get up, your sins have been forgiven. And the religious leaders go, blasphemy. And then he said that he was equal with God, and he said, blasphemy. Could Jesus say that? 
Sure, he has the power to forgive sins. By the way, my sins are forgiven because of Jesus Christ, not because of anyone here on this earth. No man can forgive me of my sins, only Jesus Christ. And he is God. He's equal with the Father. He's equal with the Holy Spirit. He is God. He is the Creator. He has the ability to be able to do that. So Jesus was accused of those things and saying he was, he was blasphemous. But what happens within the Roman church today? The priest and the Pope has the ability to do what? Forgive sins. That's why they have the confessional. To be able to come and say, your sins have been forgiven you. Go and sin no more after you pay your alms. Your sins have been forgiven. Can a man forgive sin? No. And yet they claim they have the right to be able to do it. You know what one of the titles of the Pope is? I am the representative of God here on this earth. You know what that means? I am God of this earth. I'm equal with God. I am God. That's blasphemy. The same things that Jesus was accused of is the same things of what they're doing within the church today. Daniel 7.21, the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Did the Roman church ever make war with the saints, with the saints of God? Well, it says in Daniel 7.25, persecute the saints of the Most High. That's God's people. The Western Watchman says the church has persecuted. Only a tyro or a novus in church history will deny that. We have always defended the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisition when she thinks it's good to use physical force, she will use it, meaning she will use it again. She used force to, to go up against those who were studying God's word, those reformers that were there. And if, they, if it sees fit that they need to do it again, the church will do it again to use force. St. Bartholomew's Day. August the 22nd, 1572. During that time, the bells of Paris, the bells of the churches in Paris began to ring. Tolling, just ring, 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 ring. It was a signal to the, to the Roman soldiers to come in, to be able to come in and to destroy those people that were there, of God's people to enter and to seize the Huguenots, those who were spreading that the Roman church and the Pope is the Antichrist. Men, women, and children were slaughtered by the church itself. During the Inquisition, millions were killed by the sword and were being burned at the stake because they wanted to study the Bible for themselves and were coming to the conclusion as God was leading them. They believed that that they were doing God's will. And can you imagine watching sometimes your own family dying right before your eyes? Daniel 7, 25. Think to change times and laws. Has that ever happened? 
What law is important to God? The Sabbath. Well, the whole Ten Commandments is important to God. It's that royal law. Uh, the Pope has power to change times and to abrogate laws and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. That's the teachings of Christ. It says the Pope has the power to change the teachings of Christ. That's a pretty powerful statement. The royal law of God is a revelation of the character of God. Satan can't stand God's character. He's at war with God because of his law and his character. And in the Ten Commandments, which is the basis of God's law, he wants to destroy it. So the church, the, the Roman church, has removed the second commandment. Do you know what the second commandment is? Bowing down to any graven images. You shall not bow down to any graven images. They've taken that totally out of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because that's exactly what they do when they go to church each week. Bow down to graven images. They took that out. But now that only leaves nine commandments, so we've got to do something else. So one of the other things they do is they, they make the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment in the Bible, but they make it the third commandment, saying it is, by the way, if you go to a... Roman Catholic Bible, it still has all of them in there, all Ten Commandments. I often have Bible studies with, with Catholic individuals, and I show them. They say, well, the third commandment is to remember the Sabbath. And I says, well, let's take a look. And we start counting them. It's the fourth. And they says, what's going on here? But they moved it to the third is what they tell them, and then they remove anything about God being the Creator. It just says, remember the Sabbath day. They don't say about it being holy or anything else. They just leave it the way it is. But they still have to take the Ten Commandments, so they take the Tenth Commandment, talking about coveting, and they divide it in two and make that two commandments, even though it's all just talking about coveting, coveting your, your uh, neighbors and everything else. They divide that up, and then they say that's the Ten Commandments and that they have the power to be able to do that and to change it. In order to have those Ten Commandments, they, 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 they talk about it. They say, we keep the commandments of God. But remember, Satan demands worship, but he wants it to be a little different than God's worship. And so that's why they began to change things. And look, he even changed the day of worship from Saturday the Sabbath to Sunday, the first day of the week. Look what it says, the Catholic Encyclopedia. The church, after changing the day, who changed the day? wasn't God. After changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week, made the third commandment, remember I said they moved the fourth commandment down to the third because they got rid of the one, made the third commandment, which just says, remember the Sabbath day, says, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to keep, to be kept as the Lord's day. St. Catherine, now look at this, look at the date, May 21st, 1995. This isn't something way back in time. This is May the 21st, 1995. The Catholic Church Sentinel says perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to what? To Sunday not from any directions noted in the Scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. Now look at this. People who think that the Scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become what? 
Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Good advertising, isn't it? But see, they can flaunt it in the face of people and say, we've got the power to change things. Even though it doesn't say it in the Scripture, even though they're Seventh-day Adventists, you know them, they're just a sect over there, they're no threat to anyone. If you want to do that, you go become a Seventh-day Adventist. But if you really want to follow the people, you keep Sunday as the day of worship. The Scripture doesn't say so, but you can keep it. Take a look. Faith of our fathers, James Gibson. You may read the Bible from Genesis to what? Revelation. And you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. And that's true. The Converts Catechism. Why do we observe Sunday instead of the Sabbath? Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. You can't get any bolder than that. But that's the devil's tactics, is to come within a church and to make people think that I am worshiping on the day that God says to where to worship, when in reality it is not God's day, it is the devil's day. The devil wants people to worship him, not to worship God. So he puts up his counterfeit, his counterfeit day, his counterfeit church, his counterfeit everything for us to go in that direction thinking, oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow, I'm in the true church. But it doesn't have, it doesn't coincide with any of the teachings within the Bible. Maybe some, but some of the things is not there. And they laugh and they say, we do it because it's, it's our power to be able to do so here on this earth. Are the Ten Commandments binding in this world today? You better believe it. God never destroyed the commandments. That is His kingdom. If He destroyed any one of the commandments, He would be destroying Himself and His kingdom. If He changed any of His commandments, He'd have to change Himself. He would be a liar if he said, don't remember the Sabbath day, remember some other day. He would be a liar because he wrote it with his own finger on the tablets. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. And just goes right on, gives us the instruction. He wouldn't have said remember if he didn't know that the world was going to forget. It's just as important today as it ever has been. Let's look at one last fingerprint of the evidence about the Antichrist, the little horn that Daniel talked about. Daniel 7.25, And they shall be given into his hand. That's the saints of God shall be given into, the, into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of times. The word time comes from the Aramaic word Idan, I-D-D-A-N, which means a year. The plural form of the word that we translate in English as times means two years, and a dividing of the time is the dividing of that one year, which is a half a year. Three and a half years. How long was the ministry of Jesus from the time of his baptism till his crucifixion? Three and a half years. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, that the counterfeit of, of Satan would, he would have his church come in and it would have a counterfeit of three and a half prophetic years. Take a look. A year 
in Jewish calendars. You have to use a Jewish calendar because that was the years. That's what they used back when they wrote the Bible and everything. You can't use any other calendar but the Jewish calendar. There are how many days in a Jewish year? 360 days in a Jewish year, 30 day in each one of the months. You take 360, which is one year, and then you take, I think I got it here, 720 days, which is two years, and a half of a year is 180 days, and you add it together, it's 1,260 years. By the way, 1,260 days, 1,260 days is three and a half years in Jewish time. And Ezekiel says that each day in prophecy, each day equals what? A year. Okay, we have 1,260 years there was a time period when there was great persecution going on in the church. When did Rome receive its great power and authority? Do you know what date? 538. That's when they destroyed that other one, received its power. And if you go 1260 years, it comes down to 1798 A.D. That's when the French general, Berthier, came in and took captive the Pope destroyed the Roman church, said that they could no longer worship the Roman church. The Pope was taken in captivity where he died in captivity. Looked like the end of the church itself. By the way, Revelation talks about the Roman church. It said that it would receive a deadly wound. Then what does it say? Then the wound will be healed. If you receive a deadly wound, a mortal wound, what does that mean? You die. The Pope died in captivity, but then the wound is healed. What does that mean? A resurrection came back to life. Talk about Jesus dying and resurrection. Do you see how close that the, the devil is trying to get in there to try to counterfeit everything? Comes back to the life. The, the Pope is, is handed back his power and his authority, and, uh, and he's back in the power today. And when he gets that power and authority, what's going to happen? What's the world going to do? when he is resurrected, where his wound is healed. The whole world is going to wander after him. Let me ask you a question. Just about, well, let me make a statement. About every time the Pope blows his nose, it's on CNN. He can't make a move without it being on there. He can't go to another country without it being broadcast and without the television crew flying in a special plane that goes behind his plane or ahead of it and lands and they start taking the pictures of him coming off and coming down on the ground. The whole world wanders after him. He had non-Christian, Christian both, Muslim, Jews. They're all clamoring to come and to, and to have this time with the Pope. They all come. And you know what they do when they come before him? They kneel down before him. Atheists kneel down before him. A very powerful man. Very powerful in politics, very powerful in religion. People, when he speaks, people listen. And they want to do what he has to say. And the whole world wanders after him. 1260 years, we talked about that. Daniel 7:13. I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. You know what this is talking about? Right after... It talks about and reveals this little horn and description of exactly who it's going to be. The next thing that's going to happen is the second coming of Christ. That's what we're looking for. But brothers and sisters, that means he's coming probably in our time. And we've got to be ready because the devil knows that he's coming. 
He knows he has but a short time to live. And because he has a short time to live, you know he's going to fight? He's going to make war with God's remnant. Who's the remnant? That's us. And that means he's going to come in and either try to destroy us by force or by deception or by making you think that you're worshiping God when you're not, to make you start wandering after his direction instead of following, thus saith the Lord. He knows that he has a short time to live. And so he's making a direct attack upon us. And we can't allow that to take place. Daniel 7:13. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not go away. That's who we're to serve, is Jesus Christ. He's coming again. God's going to set up his kingdom. The devil thinks he's got a kingdom that's set up. He's going to take over the world. Let me tell you something. He thinks he has a church that's going to take over the religion. Let me tell you something. God has a kingdom. It's going to be those who are following God and keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus that are going to be ready when Jesus comes. And there will be no deception because we're going to know who it is, what's going on, and what's happening. But if you're lulled to sleep, Oh, by the way, the last church in Revelation chapter 3 in the time period, you know, you got the seven churches that are there. The last church is the what church? Laodicean church. What describes the Laodicean church? They're asleep. They're not hot or cold. The ten virgins, they're all Adventists. They're all waiting for the, for the Lord to come. Five of them, they're all sleeping. Five of them's not ready at all. Somewhere along the line, they're ill-prepared. Brothers and sisters, that's telling us that God's people is going to have a bunch of us that are ill-prepared for the second coming of Jesus, but they all are hoping for the same thing. That means the devil's going to come in and do his trick on us. The question is, are we going to allow him to do it? But it's your choice. And that's why we've got to look at this, and that's why we've looked at all the other things, is that he is very powerful, very deceptive, very untruthful, but he does it in such a way that you still think that you're worshiping God. That's why we've got to be doers of the Word. That's why we've got to be people of faith. Because the greatest thing that is going to happen is this coming of Jesus. I want to be ready when he comes, don't you? I want to be there because he's ready to come himself. There's an old Advent hymn that the Adventists loved to sing when they thought that in 1844 that Jesus was going to come at that time. They gathered together and they, they were fooled. They didn't quite study everything, but when they got back in and started studying Daniel and everything, they discovered they were wrong. But this hymn that they sang, one of the hymns, Hymn number 442 is How Sweet Are the Tidings. As we sing that, we're going to sing it in anticipation of the soon coming of Jesus that we're going to be on his side. Let's take our hymnal and sing. Hymn number 442.
Should we stand as we sing together? is going to be so bright, the sound is going to be so audible that the wicked, those who have been deceived by Satan, will desire for the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from your brightness. 
I don't want anyone to be a part of the wicked that is here. I want us all to be part of those that are going to rejoice and be reunited with their loved ones who have died in Christ, where we'll all meet you in the air to be with you forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.